0: Turn your Bible, if you would, to Job 42. We've been uh, working our way through the book of Job for the last four months now, and um, we come to the end of our series uh, today. It's always bittersweet for me when I come to the end of a a sermon series because, you know, there's so much time invested and prayer invested, and the Lord has done a great work in my own heart and life. Um, But we will very soon, we're going to turn to the book of Romans, which is rich and dense and powerful uh, and as many have said, the greatest letter ever written. So you can uh, prepare yourself for that by reading through the book if you're not already. Um, again, we've spent four months in the book of Job. It's a fascinating and, and as we've seen a very heartbreaking story, as we see, we've seen all that's happened to Job. Our custom here is to preach through books of the Bible. We believe that when God's word is rightly preached, we actually get to hear from God. And what God has to say is far more important uh, infinitely more important than what anybody else can come up with, um, and again, we're at the last uh, last sermon in the book of Job, and and the end is actually happier than the beginning. Uh, two weeks ago, my oldest son, who is a young uh, pastor in training, officiated his first funeral, his first memorial service, and it was it was actually for uh, his wife's grandmother who. Big personality, kind of the matriarch of the family, you know, of course, very well loved, very well known. She passed away from cancer. And they asked my son to officiate the funeral, which was a great honor, and he was thrilled and humbled to do it. And so they flew from San Diego to St. Louis and then drove to Quincy, Illinois. And in the preparation, of course, he's hitting me up. My son is with all kinds of questions. You know, what, what, what do I do about this? And how do I handle that? And how long should the graveside service be? And is it okay to say something funny or should it all be serious? What should the tone be? And it just, you know, went on and on. And of course, I was, I was glad to help. I was glad to, to be able to be there to help. Um, well, her name was Ardith, And I said, just celebrate her. But ultimately, you have to make much of Jesus because there would be no so-called celebration of life if not for the person and work of Jesus. So just as Jesus is the hero of the Bible, he's also the hero of every memorial service. Um, what I've seen over the years in a lot of memorial services is what can only rightly be called hagiography, which is uh, the idealization or even the worship of those who have gone on before. And so often you leave a funeral and you think, well, i, I I could never be the person that he was, the grandfather, the father, the worker, the neighbor, whatever, and so you leave discouraged rather than uh, enamored by the work of Jesus Christ. So I'd I'd share with him that, and um, and, and by God's grace, you know, the Lord really used him. Well, it's interesting in the Bible, you you see actually the account of thousands of deaths, not all by name, but thousands of deaths throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and only in a handful of them, say, five or six maybe, there's one particular phrase that's used to describe the passing of the person who died. So for those of you who are into math, I don't know what the percentages are, but it's way, way less than 1%. And that particular phrase that's used, again, just very, very sparingly of, of those who are died, of died is, the, is that person died old and full of years. Old and full of years. Now, What does that mean? What does that mean to die old and full of years? We might think that it means a person lived a long time, lived to the ripe old age of whatever, but actually there are countless people in the scriptures who died very old, but this phrase is not used about them. We see death again all throughout the scripture. We see the record of Adam's death and then The first five chapters of Genesis alone, we read about nine deaths, beginning with Abel, who was killed by his own brother, Lamech, Noah's father, who who died of old age. Again, it goes on and on. But about a few, very, very few, we read this phrase, he died an old man and full of days. And what it means is actually something pretty remarkable. I'm going to get into that in a minute, and I'll, I'll go ahead and tip you off Uh, this phrase, one of the very few times it's used is is to describe Job himself, as we're going to see at the end of this chapter. Uh, And we'll talk about what that means. Before we get to Job's death, uh, let's talk about his restoration. If you're new with us, uh, new to the book of Job, Job was a man who lived over 3,000 years ago. We don't know exactly when. We're not told exactly when. We know sometime after Noah and before Moses, And Job was a very, very wealthy man. He was the most wealthy man all all around. He was the greatest man in the East, we're told. He was prominent. He was wealthy. He was well-known. He had everything. And then, for a reason known only to God, God allowed Satan to take everything from Job. All of his wealth, his livestock, his reputation, his earning power, and even his own children. And shortly thereafter, even Job's health. Now, I've gotten a lot of questions about this series, and I I really appreciate those. I love getting questions. And the one that's been asked maybe more than any is this. Could Could you clarify for me who's actually bringing about Job's trials? Is it God or is it Satan? Well, you would imagine you know what my answer is. The answer is yes, right? It is. It's God. Allowing Satan to put Job to the test, not because Satan conned God into doing something that he didn't want to do. What happened to Job was part of was God's sovereign plan all along. Satan did it. God was behind it. And to show that God was not being manipulated by Satan, God only goes so far with this. So Satan wants to destroy Job, but God will not allow it. Uh, God permits Satan's evil and malicious schemes only to the extent that they serve the wise and holy purposes of God. Chapter 2 will unfold in th- uh, 42 rather, will unfold in three stanzas, Job's confession, God's rebuke, and then God's incredible generosity. So let's look at Job's confession beginning with verse 1 of Job 42. Here reads the word of the Lord. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So I want to pause there for a minute. So remember, Job's been asking, he's been begging with God, God, just give me a chance to plead my case. Just give me the opportunity to show you, God, why, why I'm right in all this. Why you have unfairly allowed these things to happen. Well, finally, Job comes to the end of his questioning of God, and he confesses to God that, God, you don't owe anyone an explanation. Job admits he knows nothing compared to God. And surely one of the takeaways of this whole study for this whole book is if you're looking for specific answers as to why suffering happens in the world, or, or even as to why you're going through the suffering that you're going through, God will not likely provide the specifics. We see that. God never explains to Job the reason for his suffering. He never even tells Job the source of the suffering. We know as the reader what's going on in this sort of heavenly council or trial at the very beginning, but Job doesn't know. And so if you're looking for what to do in in your misery or your pain or your grief or your trial, um, God probably will not give you the very specifics. But if you take in the story of redemption, you, you take in the Bible, God will begin to deepen your understanding of who He is and make Himself known to you. He may not give you the reasons why, but He will help you to understand Him as He truly is. And actually... By the grace of God and the Spirit of God, that will be enough. God will make it so that it's enough. Job and his friends have been asking the question, why? And God responds by asking them the question, who? Who determined the earth's measurements? Tell me, God says, if you know. Who numbered the clouds? Surely you know, God says. Who causes rain to fall on dry land? Who provides food for the ravens? Who can tame the wild beasts? Who leads the wild beasts as with a leash? Who makes the dew to cover the ground in the morning? Who hung the stars in the sky? Again, Job and his friends want to know, why God? Especially Job. Why? Why are you doing this? Why would you allow this to happen to me? After all, I've been such a good person. Why do we suffer? Why do we lose the things that we love? Why do we have such pain? And God's answer is, you don't need to know why. I do the things I do. It's too much for you. What you need to know is who I am. Pastor and theologian Douglas O'Donnell writes, there's no therapeutic babble from the tongue of God. He does not offer Job restored self-esteem or healing. And the beautiful thing is that Job is not concerned about those things anymore. Job does not want anything but God. This is what God offers, and that is what Job takes. All this reminds Job of something that that God had said to him earlier. Look at verses 4 through 6. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Now, this is Job speaking, but he's not challenging God. He's simply calling to mind what God has said to him. Uh, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now it's fair to say, of all the horrible things that have happened to Job and all the dialogue that we've read about, this is actually the turning point of the whole story. Job's repentance. Job repents. He admits that he was a fool to argue with God, and he's disgusted with himself that he ever questioned God's justice. Job has never cursed God, as his wife instructed him to do. But he has accused God of being indifferent at best and unjust at worst. Job has assigned motives to God. We saw last week, God does not take kindly when we assign motives to him, especially impure motives. God confronted Job on it, and here Job repents. Now, another question that's come up throughout the series, and uh, came up, in fact, just last week in a, in a different uh, setting, is should a Christian ever despise himself. In other words, is self-hatred, is self-loathing an acceptable virtue for a Christian? Is it ever right for us as believers to hate ourselves? Because it seems like that's what Job does. He says in verse 6, I despise myself. And the answer is, for the Christian, self-hatred should never be part of our thought lives. Never. As Christians, we are made, or or better, remade to see ourselves as God sees us. And God sees all of those who are in Christ as holy, beloved, even obedient children. Positionally, that's who we are in Jesus. God no longer sees our imperfections. He sees the righteousness of His own Son instead. So we may feel like failures. And you may feel like, oh, I've just absolutely made a mess of this. You may feel like a terrible person, a hopeless person, a hopeless sinner, a repeat offender. But God sees you as His beautiful creation, Ephesians 2. As His friend, James 2. As a chosen one, holy and beloved, Colossians 3. And so it's never really right for us as believers to... To, to hate ourselves, to actually consider this self-loathing as something that's viable. A seminary professor, seminary, seminary professor told a story once about how when he was a freshman in high school, he was playing on this soccer team for this little country uh, Christian church, or a school rather, and he's playing for this team, and they had made it to the sectionals, and they went to this, this game against this massive uh, school. I, I don't know how the school was that much larger than theirs, but they go, he plays on this little, uh, you know, again, for this little Christian school, they go and he this, walk, he's walking in, he rode there with his parents. He's walking to the arena and he sees the other team warming up on the field. And he just says out loud, I hate myself right now. Well, his mom was behind him and his mom said to him, you have no right, you have no Right. Now, the seminary professor was recounting this story that happened, you know, many years ago. And he said that what my mom said, theologically speaking, was the perfect response. He said, I expected pity. What I got was far better the truth of how God sees us and the reality that how God sees us is actually what we truly are. God sees us in all the ways I just mentioned. Beloved. Holy. Holy cherished, treasured, chosen by God himself. So to hate ourselves is to deny how God has remade us for those of us who are in Christ. Now, last week we talked about the new humanism being no longer this great concern about all of humanity, what's going to happen to the human race, but now the new humanism is, how, the greatest concern of all is how I am perceived. So how do people perceive me? Well, we looked at that again last week. If what matters more than how we perceive us is, of course, how we perceive God, but also how God perceives us. And we've seen uh, what, how God sees us. Now, you say, well, why does Job say he despises himself? This is poetic language for a deep-seated, genuine repentance. Here's our first point this morning. Repentance is a grace of God whereby our soul is awakened to God's holiness, repulsed by our own sinfulness, and comforted in God's mercy. Now, I say that repentance is a grace because it is a gift of God. You can't can't make somebody else repent. Have you ever went to somebody and you said, you need to say you're sorry. You need to say to me, I'm sorry. Do they ever say I'm sorry after that? I mean, there's a, not only is there a reaction to that sort of, sort of law-based approach, but you can't make somebody else believe that what they did was wrong. You can't make somebody else feel sorrow over their sin. Only God can do that. And he brings us to repentance in a variety of ways. Here in Job's case, God brings him to repentance by revealing to Job something of God's majesty, magnitude, holiness, and power. Before we got into Job, we spent a few months uh, working through First John, so that was our sermon series. And when we looked at 1 John, we saw that, that John, he actually, he asked this question and answers it, what is a genuine Christian? You know, a lot of people say I'm a Christian. But John kind of gave these tests, so to speak, of what a genuine Christian is. This is what a Christian looks like. And one of the the things that he got at is, ultimately the answer to, am I really a Christian, is not, do I ever sin? Because we all sin. A better indicator than do I really sin is, am I broken when I sin? Am I filled with sorrow when I reject God's commands? Am I repentant when I sin. And I think it's helpful for us to consider. In your life, how do you respond when you violate one of God's commands? When you say something you shouldn't? When you look at something you shouldn't? When you think something you shouldn't? When you do something that God forbids? Do you feel the pangs of guilt? Do you feel the brokenness and the sorrow because you've sinned against a holy God, as an indication of your status with God, again, a better indicator than, do I ever struggle with anger, or do I ever give in to lust, or do I ever give way to sexual sin, or am I ever jealous, or am I greedy, is how do I feel after I sin in that way? You can struggle in all those ways, pride, anger, guilt, lust, jealousy, greed, whatever, and still be a Christian. In fact, if there is a struggle that's actually a good thing. If there's no struggle, that's actually a really frightening thing. In other words, if you feel no remorse, you feel no sorrow over sin, there's no repentance, that's a very frightening place to be. You get angry and you never feel convicted. You give in to lust and you're not broken. You sleep with your girlfriend and there's no sorrow over it. You're jealous of your neighbor, but you don't feel broken over it. Job, on the other hand, is absolutely crushed. And the verses I read, Job pours out his heart to God, confessing the ways he has spoken beyond his knowledge and made wrong assumptions about God. Well, next Job, or God rather, would address Job's friends. Look at verse 7 through 9. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, For you've not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite, went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. We've seen throughout this book, all of Job's friends make essentially the same argument. They say, if bad things are happening to you, that's because you're a bad person. And if good things are happening to you, it's because you're a good person. And so they say to Job, naturally, you're a really bad person. Because look at all the bad things that have happened to you. And so what they do is they make God a God who is devoid of grace and only about deserving and merit and law. And they rob God of His grace. They are what we might call, excuse me, peddlers of karma. Peddlers of karma. In God's own word, they have not spoken of God what is right. Now what's interesting and a tad bit confusing here is that twice in the section I read, uh, God says, they've not spoken of him what is right, as my servant Job has. Twice we read that. And yet we know from chapters 38, 39, and 40, that Job has been rebuked by God for the way that he has talked about God, the things that he said about God. So what is God saying when he says that Job has spoken right about him? Well, it appears as though God is referring to Job's most recent words concerning God, Job's repentance in 42, and God then calls Job's friends to repent. And God says to Job's friends, go and have Job's sacrifice and pray for you as a sign of your repentance, which Job does, and then God forgives Job's friends. And here we have, and I love this, it's seeming, such a seemingly obscure paragraph, but I absolutely love it because we have yet another beautiful example of God's grace. Job's friends have been the worst possible friends they have been the worst counselors they have caused deep harm by their bad theology and by their bad counsel and even by accusing job of things that he never did so they've been terrible friends and not only have they been terrible friends they have misrepresented god himself but god's grace extends even to them in the same way it does for us When we're bad friends, when we give bad counsel, when we keep making everything about us, when we refuse to listen and demand that we're right, when we falsely accuse others, when we have made a fool of ourselves, and even when we've spoken wrongly about God, God's grace covers our sin. Here's our second point. God's grace covers all our sins, even our mischaracterizations about God. You might think, well, yeah, I mean, God's going to forgive the things that I do, but I know if I say something wrong about Him, that's beyond the pale. That's not going to be forgiven. Well, no, even our mischaracterizations of God. Have you ever wondered or or even worried about uh, what the unpardonable sin is? There was a, in the early 2000s, there was a, hundreds of young adults took what was called the blasphemy challenge. This is, again, 2003, 2004, as I recall, and where they filmed themselves, you know, with their phones, cursing the Holy Spirit, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and then posting that on YouTube. Now, the point was to mock the existence of God. And even to directly violate Jesus' warning in Mark 3, which says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit uh, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, as a pastor, I remember, I remember parents coming to me absolutely terrified that their their, one of their children had committed the unpardonable sin. And I remember even beyond that, I remember those who, who foolishly participated in this act, this, the young adults themselves coming to me and saying, and, and I remember one young lady in particular being just absolutely broken in tears, saying, I did this. I, I'm afraid that I've committed the unpardonable sin. Now, I think we would all agree if there's a sin that cannot be forgiven, that is an eternal sin We don't want to commit that sin, do we? We want to do everything we can to avoid committing that sin. Well, my answer to those who called or emailed or met with me in person about this was, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not uttering some phrase or or some combination of words or insults, even insults against God, nor is it even denying the existence of the Holy Spirit. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not one single phrase or even action for that matter, um, that you can commit for which there's no forgiveness. Jesus has something else in mind. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit, this is not one of our points, but I am going to put it up there so you can read it. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit, or maybe I am. Um, There it is. Uh, To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to willfully and persistently deny the Spirit's work in the human heart and to ultimately justify oneself in doing so. This is what the scribes in uh, the first century Jewish context were doing. They refused to accept the Spirit's work for what it was. And even this act in itself is not unforgivable. It's unpardonable only because it slams the door shut on genuine saving faith, which is what God uses to save us by, right? So the persistent witness of Scripture is that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not by any sort of works, good deeds, actions, generosity, perceived, meritorious works, anything like that, faith alone. But even faith is a gift, a result of the Spirit's work in the heart of unbelievers. Without the Spirit's drawing, repentance and faith are impossible. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit to willfully and ultimately deny the Spirit's work in the human heart is is unforgivable in that it closes the door on faith. Let me me explain it another way. Um, Someone else has said it's kind of like deciding conclusively and without wavering that the doctor who wants to perform on you a life-saving surgery is in fact a cruel murderer. Now, if you conclude that, it's not because of that conclusion that you will, uh, you're going to die right away, but if you'll never give the doctor consent to operate on you, then that conclusion then bears out in your, your resistance, your rebellion against God in that way. That's what blaspheming the Holy Spirit is. Again, it's ultimately finally rejecting the one who would make it possible for us to receive the life-saving heart transplant we need. Now, here's how that relates to Job. I think it's very important as we think about our own lives and all the things that we've said over the years. There is no statement, there is no combination of words, there is no action that is beyond God's scope of forgiveness. God's grace is infinitely wider and more sufficient than we ever imagine, saving even the most heinous of offenders. So maybe you say, well, wait a second. It says that to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to blaspheme is an unpardonable sin. I would draw your appointment to the your your attention to the apostle Paul, who himself says, "I was a blasphemer and a murderer." So it's not as though you 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 could ever say one thing and be like, "Oh, well, I've I've, fa- I've said that phrase and now there's no hope for me at all to be reconciled to God." No. God's grace is powerful enough to cover the sins of according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 the sexually immoral, the idolater, the adulterer, the men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkard, revilers, swindlers, those who abuse their parents, and plenty of others, even blasphemers. So take joy in this. If you belong to Christ, if you've repented and put your faith in Jesus, there's nothing you can do, there's nothing you can say to separate yourself From the love of God. If you are a Christian, you can never commit the unpardonable sin. There's no violation of God's commands at any level that are beyond the scope of God's grace to forgive. Here in Job 42, God extends his grace even to those who have spoken wrongly about God himself and to great harm. Now let's get to the exciting conclusion here, verses 10 and following. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. When he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Kirin And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So finally, after all that Job has been through, and again, it's, you know we read it and it's just unimaginable. After all that Job has been through, Job is restored. And not just restored. Verse 10, God tells us that God gave Job twice as much as he had before, twice the wealth, twice the livestock, twice the respect. Those who once maligned him now dine with him in honor, and perhaps even, we don't know for sure, perhaps even twice the number of friends. He has a renewed relationship with his wife, which evidently included a renewed intimacy. We know that because God gave them 10 more children. And these daughters are the most beautiful in the land. So God didn't give Job more daughters. He just gave them prettier ones, seems. Which is odd, isn't it, that we're told how pretty they were, um, but nothing about his first daughters. And these daughters were not only beautiful, but they were rich. They had an inheritance, we're told, which would have been a very uncommon thing for women in the ancient Near Eastern world. So they were, so they were told about he had... He had 10 more kids and three of his daughters were incredibly beautiful and rich. Now I was going to, I thought to myself in my preparation here, I was going to make an analogy and say Job's daughters were like the so-and-so of our day. But then I caught myself, I could just hear my wife saying, oh, okay. So that's who comes to your mind when you think about the most beautiful people. So I'm just going to leave that as they're just beautiful ladies. Um, Either way. God blessed Job with 10 children. Now, of course, having 10 more children doesn't take away the pain uh, from losing the, the previous 10. But it does show that God fully restored Job. In fact, Job lived 140 years after these trials. We can pretty much surmise, though with not exact accuracy, but Job was probably around 60-ish when all this happened to him. And so he lived another 140 years. So that means he, if that's the case, he would have lived to be 200 he died, as I mentioned, old and full of days. Well, what does that mean? The phrase translated full of days is a Hebrew idiom used very sparingly to mean satisfied. He died fully content. 19th century Scottish theologian Andrew or Alexander McLaren says this about the men described by that phrase full of days. The men were satisfied with life having exhausted its possibilities, having drunk a full draft, having nothing more left to wish for. The words point to a calm close with all desires gratified and hot wishes stilled with no desperate clinging to life, but a willingness to let it go because all which it could give had been attained. Job died satisfied. There was no desperate clinging to life, but a willingness to let it go. And I think it certainly begs the question for us, how did Job get there? And furthermore, how do we get there? How do we get to a place where we are content? How do we get to a place where we are satisfied? How do we get to a place where we're actually willing to let go and not hold on to life with a desperate fear? It would be easy, I think, to get the impression by this phrase, full of life, that contentment or satisfaction comes with having enough. Having enough stuff. By doing enough, maybe. By accomplishing everything we ever dreamed of. But that can never be the case when it comes to eternity. How much must a person accumulate in order to stand before God and say, look, look at all I have. How much must, must a person do in order to stand before God and say, look, I believe I've done enough. Nothing could be enough. We've read about this holy God in the book of Job. What can we ever do? What can we ever say that would allow us to come before God and say, now you must accept me because of all that I've done and all that I've accomplished? It will never ever be enough. True contentment only comes from being reconciled to God. True satisfaction only comes From being united with God. Now sure, you can can enjoy a lot of things in life. And you can have some really high highs apart from God. But in the end, it leaves a bitter taste. And it is a fleeting pleasure. And it is an empty uh, satisfaction. Here's our final point this morning. Contentment in this life will never come through production, that is doing enough, or accumulation, that is, garnering enough stuff, but by resting in the provision of our Creator. So we say, look, I, you know, I, I've had a really successful life. I've got all these things together. I've got a beautiful house, and I've got stuff to pass down for generation to generation. It's not going to be enough. It's never going to be enough. Actually, in this life, or certainly for the sake of the next one. We think about the five men that I mentioned, about whom the scriptures say they died full of life. They were trusting in God's promised one. They were resting in God's provision. Abraham was called a friend of God. Abraham was a man of faith. It was his faith that was credited to him as righteousness. Why? Because he was looking forward to the promised one. David walked so closely with God that he was called a man after God's own heart. Job was called a righteous man who pursued God. All of these men were in right relationship with God, and a right relationship with God is only possible through the one God sent, His ultimate provision, we might say, His Son, Jesus, who lived for us, died for us, and was raised again for us. The accumulation of things is an empty set. It leads to disappointment and frustration because none of those things ever leads to lasting satisfaction or fulfillment or certainly the readiness to meet God. The Apostle Paul would make that clear in a letter he wrote some 1,700 years after Job lived. He talked about his readiness to die to a church at Philippi. It wouldn't be because he felt like he'd amassed so much or accomplished so much or been such a good person. To the contrary, he wrote... Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. The God who revealed Himself to Job and who revealed Himself to us in the book of Job and in the person of His Son is a consuming fire. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the one who tells the ocean, you can go this far and no further. He is the one, as Job said, whose plans can never be thwarted. He is the God We dare not trifle with. He is one we dare not approach on our own terms or on our own goodness, but He has provided a way through His Son. What does Job say at the pivotal moment of His crisis, at the darkest moment of His existence? We can say to that point, He said, But I know my Redeemer lives. There is no lasting happiness, there is no confidence. That will stand. There is no hope that will endure apart from that which is anchored in the provision of God, which is to say, the one that God sent, His Son. If you're here this morning and you're thinking you, if you just had more stuff, you'd be happy. It never works out that way. If you're here this morning, and you think, you know what, I've got time. I'm young. I've got to sow my oats. I've got to enjoy my life. Tomorrow, your life may be required of you, may be demanded of you. And if you stand before God, not having repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, it pains me to say, but it's true, you will suffer the eternal wrath of God, unending and unrelenting. But here you are today, and if you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can repent and believe today, and the Lord makes it clear in His Word. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And maybe you're here this morning, and you've professed Christ as Lord, and, but you realize that the idols of your heart, the prominent place of your idols, has made it such that you put God at the back burner. You're not seeking His glory You're not striving after Him. You're not seeking to obey Him. Today could be the day for you to repent and rest again, trust again in the finished work of Christ, which restores us at the deepest level of our soul. Let's pray.